0: you and tired of the financial bondage that's been holding you back? Are you ready to take charge of your finances to cut your mortgage payment in half while reducing your taxes significantly? If yes, then this podcast is for you. Fiscal Fitness and Freedom can pay off the national debt in less than 10 years. So from humble beginnings of just about $500, Scott built a billion-dollar mortgage company. So here's your host, Scott
1: Smith. Hi, I'm Scott Smith. I'm the host of Fiscal Fitness and Freedom and with my co-host, Laura Lewis, today. How are you doing, Laura?
2: I'm great. How are you, Scott?
1: Good. So I'm going to ask you what you thought about the Banking 2.0 chapter.
2: I really liked it. It's definitely a chapter I had a lot of questions about and I wanted to kind of take this episode to get the answer straight from the source.
1: All right, that's fine. Shoot with your first question.
2: (laughs) Uh, So why do we need a new banking system? Can we not make some changes to our existing one to make it better?
1: So why do we need a a new one? When I talk about banking 2.0, I think of it as an upgrade to our existing banking system, but with some radical differences. The reason we need a new banking system is because we've switched from gold to fiat. In our current banking system is based upon gold. The number one characteristic of the current banking system that's based upon gold is the fact that banks need to attract deposits in order to have lending and investing power. That comes from the days of gold when we couldn't create gold on our own and so in order to get that physical gold into a bank they would have to pay interest and it was the deposits they held that gave them the ability to make loans and to invest in other things today we don't need to do it that way because the federal reserve can create money as a reserve out of thin air. And it's quite possible that the banking system is the bank is an interface between us and the Federal Reserve and the Fed is providing the money that the banks need. And I can explain that in greater depth later, but that's the basic concept there.
2: Got it. When I was reading through other chapters, I really love the concept of taxing payments over income. And when I got to the part about banking, I was really excited to see the overall solution. Can you explain that a little bit more?
1: The equivalent of the payment tax in banking 2.0 is the fact that under banking 2.0, when you deposited your money at a bank, the bank, that money would go into the Federal Reserve. The bank would no longer keep it. Today, the bank keeps it and it lends a percentage of it out. Under this system, the money goes right into the Fed. And you'll never have a bank run that way, you know, because the Fed can always recreate the money and return it to you. The Fed wouldn't be using your money either. It's almost like the Fed's just this ledger system. You put the money into it, and now it's registered, it's yours. And when you want it, it's recreated. Since the Fed can create money when the bank that you're banking at wants to make a loan or wants to make an investment, a qualified investment, it would go to the Fed too and say, here, I've got this qualified loan for you know $300,000. I need 300,000 to lend out. And the Fed would literally create that money and the Fed would lend that out. So the amount of lending capacity of any one bank would have nothing to do with its depository base. It would only have to do with the number of qualified loans it was bringing into the Fed. That may seem odd, except that I've been directly involved in both sides of those equations. I sat on the board of directors of a trust, and we had a master account with the Fed. All the money we took in was deposited with the Fed. I mean, I know this can be done. and On the flip side, I was a conduit lender in the 90s, which means I had no assets under management. I had no deposits. I had no limited partners putting money in. We had no capital at all. And all of our money came from selling bonds on Wall Street mortgage-backed securities is where the source of the capital came from. And so as a lender, we had a source of capital. It was not our own money. And we loaned that out all day long. So Banking 2.0 has already been proven to be able to be done.
2: But if the bank is not keeping your money or using your money, how are they able to make those loans?
1: From the Fed. They're getting the money directly from the Fed. So the Fed just creates the money out of thin air and it gives it to the bank and the bank lends it out. Does that make sense or is that still confusing?
2: It makes sense. I guess I'm wondering what that would do to untrust and would that still exist?
1: Oh, well, okay. So no, that's a good point. So where does interest come from today? The fact that a bank has to pay money, pay interest to attract a deposit, that started in the days of gold. So we start thinking of money having time value like that, that interest is necessary. But if the Fed is owned by the people and for the people, so that would be a shift. The Fed would not be owned by the member banks. The member banks would be service agents of the Fed. The Fed would be owned by the people and for the people. That's what I think is the proper role of a central bank. It's our bank. It's not the bank's bank, (laughs) central bank. And so if we recognize, gee, we own the central bank, and when there's an appropriate lending need, it will just create a reserve. why would we charge interest on that? (laughs) You know, And so I would envision under Banking 2.0 that for most lending activities, certainly consumer loans on cars and loans on mortgages, there would be no interest charged by the Fed to the member bank, and there would be no interest charged by the member bank to the borrower. And that has all sorts of goodness that we can talk about that makes big changes. But let me know your next question before I ramble on about that. <laughs>
2: How would that have changed the most recent bank failures and also the 2008 crash?
1: Oh, that'd be enormous. So, First of all, 2008, I don't think we'd ever have had that crisis if we had banking 2.0. That crisis occurred in large measure that as the markets really, they were doing a lot of um, loss leader types of loans where it's a teaser rate. It's an interest rate to start and then six months, 12 months later, it shifts in order to bring borrowers in. And then when the interest rate shifts, if those borrowers are not able to pay, you start getting defaults. And that was one of many things that precipitated that crisis. In some ways, I look at 2008 as an example of how dangerous interest is. If there was no interest being charged on the loan, obviously rates aren't gonna go up. You're not gonna have a change on the borrower and what their monthly payment is. But moreover. Under Banking 2.0, you would not even keep the same lending parameters. In other words, today, the lending parameter, if you go in to get a home loan, is they qualify you. You know, They underwrite your loan. They make a decision as to what is the maximum amount you can borrow. And that's based upon whatever payment is it takes to consume about a third of your income. So if we suddenly reduce rates from wherever they happen to be at the time to 0%, we're cutting those payments almost in half. And so we should change the qualifying thing instead of a third of your income, it should be a sixth of your income. Otherwise, home prices will double overnight. There'll be no value out of that. And so if you switch from a third to a sixth with 0% interest, home prices will stay the same. But now you're only spending a sixth of your income to buy a house. And that is what I view as being progress. That's like, if you look at what is progress, it's always technological progress. Progress means the ability to get more for less. You know, you used to have to walk at three miles an hour. Now you get in a car and you go 70 miles an hour, you know, <laughs> so you get more for less effort. I mean, you don't even have to spend the energy of walking, just push the pedal a little. That's right. a more for less proposition. You get in an airplane, you, sit and you get served Coke and you're going along 600 miles an hour. That's way more for less, you know? <laughs> right. It's always more for less. You used to be able to shout maybe, you know, 100 feet. Now you use a phone and you can shout across the continent more for less. And so progress, financial technological progress is more for less. And so the ability to shift it so that, buying a home takes a sixth of your income instead of a third of your income is progress. That's a major point of Banking 2.0 is to provide that type of progress for the economy that counts, which is the material economy, which is uh, goods and services of which houses are a part of it. And interfacing with the banks, interface with that economy so we have more goods and services at less cost. That's the main theme in Banking 2.0.
2: So if the money is coming from the Fed and um, there's no longer a risk for banks, what would that allow banks to do? Would they stop existing? Would they still be around?
1: There's a whole host of changes would evolve from that, no doubt. So first of all, I think a really good perspective on this is to realize that the original modern bankers were the Medici brothers back in Italy, eventually all over Europe, and they could do more things more forms of lending than our banks can today. That's regress, the opposite of progress, right? They made um, venture capital loans, they did startup loans, and all sorts of financing imaginable. And today our banks aren't able to do you know half of that. You can't go to a bank for a venture capital loan. And the reason we don't allow banks to do that is what you were alluding to. We're using the depositor's money. And so if there's any loss, it hits the depositor. But under Banking 2.0, you're using money generated by the Fed. The depositor's money is safe in a ledger somewhere. And so under that scenario, banks could specialize. You could have a venture capital bank and you receive your money from the Fed to make venture loans. And it's not like money willy nilly for anyone with no consequence. If you decide to become a venture capital bank and you're getting your money out of the Fed, you'd have to prove yourself over time. You'd have to have certain under, underwriting standards. And if your deals didn't work out, you know, you would just be shut down, but it wouldn't hurt any depositors. See, so you could actually have failures of banks under Banking 2.0, and you wouldn't have this concept of too big to fail or anything. You just lop them off at the knees and done. (laughs) I mean, they can't make it work. They can't make it work. Same thing for home loans or anything like that. You actually can have a more competitive environment and you can have consequences for things not working. But it also means like in my book, I write about something called community enterprise funds. So like I note that in startups, I would say it's probably one in a thousand startups that occur in our country and in, in any given year qualify for venture capital, at least 999 in a thousand. They don't qualify. Where You have to go to friends and family. Right. And if you don't have the right friends and family, you're not starting a company and <laughs> That's the ugly reality about our current economy. And under Banking 2.0, anyone could go to the local bank, the one that's designated to start a company, you can go to that, and that would include things, type of lender that I envision called the Community Enterprise Fund. And that would make loans on, um, you know, you wanna start a daycare center in low cost. You wanna start a community center for recreation, you want to start things that are not going to um, be pulling in a whole lot of cash. You know, where you're going to get a 10x return on an exit going on Nasdaq. You know, <laughs> like a VC <BC laughs> wants to see you do. You wouldn't a community enterprise fund wouldn't even talk about exit strategies. You know, it's like you're going to start a local grocery store. They want you to run it the rest of your life. You'd have a succession strategy. Like, when you die, who's going to run this thing, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. and, they're, and they're going to have to take an arm and a leg. You right. know, like, if you're starting a company and you're going to VCs, by the time it's all mature, you know, the conventional wisdom is, you're lucky you have 10% of your company. Well, who's your company. You started it, you know? It's like, and it's kind of nuts how the cost, finance can add up to. So, community enterprise funds would be much more oriented towards growing the local economy than lining their personal pockets, right? So Banking 2.0 opens the door to all those things. I'm glad you asked about that because that's a ramification. Last ramification going on too far is this would be the best thing ever for our nation in the sense that in in terms of our status within the world, we're in an increasingly competitive global economy. You've got China in their flush with cash, buying resources from African nations, other nations throughout the world, and onerous costs to the borrower, to the nation. So your Banking 2.0, if we're able to generate these reserves and we have these service agent banks You could designate some of them to do international financing and we could be the international financiers. And none of that comes out of the taxpayers' pocket. But all the profits profits come back for the benefit of our nation. And so that would go a long way to establishing a powerful country.
2: I can't even imagine that. That sounds amazing. Uh, What would we need to do to have this happen, to implement this?
1: Oh, how to implement it. Okay, that's a good question. It would actually be, it's kind of like the tax code. Remember I said there's 75,000 lines of pages of tax code under the current system, and you could do a payment tax in 25 pages. It's similar in uh, the banking system. There's a lot of inertia to deal with, but a large amount of the banking regulations has to do with protecting the depositor again. And if that money's just right into to the Fed, that's protected right there. And so, like I had indicated, you could afford to let banks fail under this system. And so it would take an act of Congress, Congress would have, the Federal Reserve is an animal created by Congress, and it would have to modify the charter of the Federal Reserve. I think they would want to Make it clear that it is owned by the people and for the people, and agency of the government, and that its purpose is to benefit the people of the nation, not big business, you know, right? Not the banks, and that they would have to designate things like it's, you know, it it makes purposes to generate reserves for service agents to make out. You'd you'd it would be um, a legal instrument. We'd have to put that in place. Um, The banks that exist today would shift. They could still be privately held or publicly held as they are. Um, They keep the same depositors. The money would go into the Fed instead. So you wouldn't have to have any changes there. Their current lending portfolios, they would shift that. You would have to make some sort of a provision as those loans refinance. It wouldn't be counting as the capital assets that they do today. It would not be like a minor thing, but it, right. it's not undoable by any means. It's way more feasible than the current system. <laughs> so right. that's the part that you know I take heart in. And you wouldn't you wouldn't have had all the failures that we just had, banking failures under this system. It's the conversion over would be a lot of lawyers would get pretty rich, but it can <laughs>
2: Well, with all the payment tax on them, it would only <laughs> stimulate the economy. It'd be fine.
1: Right. Yeah. There's going to be a lot of big accounting firms that lose a portion of their revenue if we switch over to a payment tax. All that would be good for the country, except for the lawyers making money. At least they'll have to pay payment tax on it. <laughs>
2: exactly. <laughs> super helpful. Thank you for answering all of those.
1: Okay. So you've got your questions answered.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay well we'll we're gonna to do town hall meetings in a couple of months and and we'll open up our channels to anyone listening asking questions, so thank you for your questions and I think our next podcast we should focus on um how we can pay off the national debt in eight years is the what schedule I put in the book, yeah, eight years, oh my gosh, yes, yeah, so look that book up or chapter or come up with some questions let's do another podcast in the next couple of days
2: sounds great i can't wait
1: okay thank you talk to you later bye bye thank you everyone
0: so that's it for today's episode of fiscal fitness and freedom head on over to itunes or wherever you listen and subscribe to the show one lucky listener every single week who posts a review on itunes We'll win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value grand prize drawing for a private VIP mentoring session with Scott Smith himself. Be sure to head on over to fiscalfitnessandfreedom.com and pick up a copy of Scott's blueprint to discovering your own unique formula to personal success. And join us on the next episode.